Well, we continue on the wonderful journey that is the 10th Doctor, David Tennant. And uh, we've got James and Leeson here today to uh, take us through the rest of uh, his era. Hello, guys. Hello, Trevor. Hello, Leeson. Hello. What a roller coaster it's been. We've been all the way back to 2006 and uh, all the way up to the end of 2007. Where does that leave us, gentlemen? What What is the next story in the uh, oeuvre of Mr. Tennant? Well, we come to Kylie Minogue and the Titanic, don't we? Mm, well, technically we do, but there was a little ditty, shall we say, that went out, I think, as part of Children in Need mm. just before we got to large flying spaceships that looked like the Titanic. Um, and that was Time Crash. Mm. Now, this this was something that I was extremely excited about. It was the first real multi-Doctor story. Well, and in all honesty, it's the only multi-Doctor story that we've had so far since Doctor Who came back in 2005. Now, strangely, the production team then were faced with a very similar situation with what Doctor Who fans think the production team are faced with now. How do you bring back a previous Doctor, when the actor is 20 years older um, than when mm. he last appeared in the role. And Time Crash, you know, the, the format of it, allowed them to get around it quite nicely, I think. Yeah, it was, it was to do with the, uh, with the, with the humour, the, the fact that it was, it was kind of a light-hearted piece. So you, you could get away with it with just sort of a throwaway line. Whether that, because um, wasn't it, some kind of dimensional uh, uh, excuse was given. Uh, and it was... And it added to the humour of it. I'm not sure whether they get away with the same sort of thing uh, for the 50th. It was so nice to see to see Five um, playing the Doctor as he as he plays him now, as he plays him, uh, you know, a bit older, a bit wiser uh, in in Big Finish. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting when you look at Tennant's portrayal more so than Davison's. I'm afraid, um, and I think that's just because. David Tennant is able to say the words Stephen Moffat gave him so utterly convincingly. Mm. David Tennant is a Doctor Who fan. And who is he watching? Back in the 80s, he was watching Peter Davison, the actor who he suddenly finds himself looking at across the TARDIS console. Uh, It must have been an amazing experience, not only as an actor, but also as a Doctor Who fan there as well. And I think this is one of David Tennant's most quirky portrayals of the Doctor. Mm. And yes, it's only a few minutes long, but I think it's very, very important few minutes. And I, I just think it's a bit of a celebration for the writer, for the actors involved, and for the fans. And I think this little production, Time Crash, is the most fanny thing that we've ever seen out of the production office since since the show came back. Uh, and, and you're right in what you say about uh, you know David Tennant's uh, portrayal, because it's interesting, you, you get that, uh, we're reminded... That that David Tennant isn't isn't the first young man to play the Doctor. He's not he's not he's not the youngest. Well, he's certainly of the same age that the Fifth Doctor is. And people tend to forget, uh, or, or certainly like to think, that David Tennant was the first young and vibrant Doctor. Uh, and, you know, it's not the case. Five, five was there way before him, and, and they and they make reference to this countless times throughout Time Crash. David Tennant is able to deliver that line of "You were my Doctor." almost dropping out of character but it, it, the, the piece doesn't lose anything for that uh, if anything it, it adds something to it I just wonder what it would be like if we saw David Tennant return to the role in 25 or 30 years time as well then the circle really would be complete I think Oh a bloated Tennant yeah that would be interesting <laughs> to see Got another Christmas special to discuss we've got Voyage of the Damned which was the 2007 Christmas special. So this was the first story that we'd had since Doctor Who returned that takes us over the hour mark. And was it worth it, gents? No. 
if you enjoy singing budgies, then yes. Otherwise, like Leeson says, no. It was interesting because we had the guest star in this story was very heavily promoted, Kylie Minogue. I mean, it was almost like she was the star of this story. She seemed to be getting more uh, uh, column inches and publicity opportunities than uh, David Tennant did. Mm. Oh, exactly. And uh, d- didn't it, it smacked of uh, JNT stunt casting? Uh, I don't know. This has been said before. Uh, but I, I don't think at, at this stage in, in, in the revival of Doctor Who that anything like that n- needed to be done uh, in order to, to raise its profile. Uh, and, and this is not to take away from a performance, which was, you know, it was perfectly reasonable. But it wasn't anything uh, spectacular. Uh, no, it, it, it didn't add anything that, that wouldn't have been there if it had been uh, an unknown that was playing it. I think it was a fairly clear indication of the way that Russell T. Davies wanted to take the show at that point, and it was pretty much to emulate JNT's approach to to marketing. Now, if, if you remember back in back in the day, Planet of Fire, I seem to remember. Peter Davison dressed up as James Bond and had Nicola Bryant as the Bond girl draped over him in various different poses. And surely David Tennant in a tuxedo with Kylie Minogue on his arm isn't a far cry from that. And I'm beginning to wonder whether or not that was a deliberate thing as well. I think Russell T. Davis got caught up with the show without getting heavily involved in the stories towards the end of his era. And I think that's what we saw quite clearly in Voyage of the Damned, and Leeson, you mentioned it a couple of episodes ago in Russell T. Davies' book, A Writer's Tale. He basically talks you through, you know, bringing the story from from the inside of his head onto the pages. And that that process is is fairly chaotic, um, the way Davies describes it. And I and I think you can see the things that he talks about, or the emails Benjamin Cook about, uh, whilst writing that story aren't big plot elements there you know he, he talks about oh how wonderful it is that we've got Kylie and what a boost for the show she's automatically going to be almost irrespective of um, what the story is like and I, I just wonder whether this was the beginning of you know what eventually led to stories like Journey's End and The End of Time the thing that stands out irrespective of what approach RTD took to writing and the development of the Tenth Doctor's character, and the performances. I mean, some of the dross David Tennant had to work with was was, was terrible. Mm. It was really, really hard. And yet his performances, particularly in Series 4 that we are, we're going to be discussing, and to some extent the specials as well, has never been better. And I, I think people look at him and say, oh, I'm really bored of Tennant angst and all the rest of it. But... I honestly think, looking at those scripts, you weren't going to get a better performance out of any actor than Tennant delivered. It's it's the aspects of the characterisation which which always sort of jarred with me. Uh, Tennant's performance is always flawless. Uh, it's it's always uh, top notch. He always gives one hundred and ten percent. And like you say, James, it's 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 often the material that he has to work with, which 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 let, lets the character down. It, it's in no way the, the reason I, I am not a fan of the of, well a big fan of the Tenth Doctor is the characterisation, not not the performance. Well, just, just briefly talking about Voyage of the Damned, of course, um, this, this was the Russell T. Davies era third stab at doing a Christmas special. And I honestly think they don't really have it right, even after their third go. There's stuff you can actually be really offended by in this story, I found. There's jokes about fat people. There's jokes about short people. It seemed to be really out of step with, I suppose, what a Christmas-type special should be. Yeah, I, I think you're right, actually. Um, and, and it's not for the first time that Russell T. Davies has gone for those, what you might say, soft targets. Um, we'll call soft targets. I think 
when when you look at season one, you've got the Slovene, and that's all about larger people and problems with flatulence. Um, then you've got Voyage of the Damned mm. with the two characters. Uh, I think the female character's name was Blom or something, and I can't remember the guy's name. But you're right, there was a lot said about their size. And when you look at episode one of season four, Partners in Crime, it's all about weight loss, which automatically means that they've got to engage a whole load of larger actors. So people said Russell T. Davies had lots of different agendas, but did he have a gay agenda? Did he have an anti-religious uh, agenda, or particularly anti-Christian agenda? I think the most obvious theme um, is that he, he liked writing about larger people at their expense. He has a diet agenda. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I never really got that it was um, it was sort of poking fun. Uh, I, I suppose uh, you know, with the adipose, it was. It, I suppose it's a current, it's a modern issue. Um, but I, I think I suspect that that was how, how where he was coming from. That um, that obesity is a, is a is a modern issue, and he was thinking, I will, I'll try and weave this into a, into a Doctor Who thing. I never really got that um, that he was being cruel in any way. Oh, I, I think he always had an element of comedy in those characters. I mean, they weren't just additional characters there were people who had either funny lines or you know they they in partners in crime some of them died because they were fat because that's what the story was about but people do die because they're fat i don't think this is it's not um a saturday tea time with little cute blobs popping out of them for comedic effect yeah well, uh, well, why, why not i mean it's, it's highlight, highlighting a, a a serious issue I, I but i didn't feel there was any malice in it no, I, I think malice is too strong a word. I wouldn't go there. But I, I do think he does poke fan at all manner of uh, of subsets at times. He's got no problem with um, uh, stereotype humour. And you know, and I think that's fine to a degree because part of it is quintessentially British, perhaps, um, as just within our national psyche. Mm. We like laughing at, uh, at the stereotypes and... Uh, generalizations are are, are are funny apparently and that's that's what we seem to think um but i i'm not so sure whether or not they deserved such a prominent role uh particularly within one writer's stories but uh but partners in crime for me i mean let, let, let's talk about um what the main thrust of this particular episode was we're into 2008 now after a four or five month break since voyage of the damned we get another new companion at the beginning of a new series and I think when you've got the quality of someone like Catherine Tate Freema Edgeman is almost certainly going to be written out (laughs) now I don't know whether or not she was contracted purely initially for season three or whether the plan was to keep her for a little bit longer but either way she had to make way for Catherine Tate there was no way that she was going to share the same screen with another companion I think and hindsight's wonderful but uh, I'm, I'm remarkably pleased that was the case a lot's been said about the wonderful Donna Noble playing alongside the uh, Tenth Doctor, and it, it's a shame Tom can't be here today because he he would be the biggest fan of uh, Donna Noble because I I think she was a breath of fresh air for the series in terms of the way they are characterising companions. Up till then, it had pretty much been oh, I so love you, Doctor. I've you know I've fallen in love with you. Let's let's get married and run away and build a big house type thing. But here we got a companion that didn't put up with any of that nonsense she was straightforward she was down the line you know she told the doctor what for and that series four i think has the most interesting doctor companion dynamic of of his entire run Mm, i agree completely and do you think they would have gone for a character like donna had Catherine tate not turned out to be available well i think like with any 
actor or actress that takes on that sort of role, they play to their strengths. And I think they knew that Catherine was capable of delivering that very strong performance, you know, someone that wouldn't put up with any nonsense from the Doctor. So most definitely. Uh, And I'm sure they had her in mind probably all the way through Series 3, knowing she'd be there in 2008. I, I think they certainly wanted her. Um, to come as a regular companion or come back as a regular companion but I don't think it was uh, I don't think it was even rumours and you know till at least six seven months after The Runaway Bride had aired and then you had all of this concern within fandom that she was going to play you know again I've completely forgotten the name of the character that she was famous for the comedic character that she was famous for playing the one who always said bothered Mm. Um, but she created huge consternation or her casting created huge consternation throughout fandom and it wasn't until partners in crime had finished airing that people had thought actually yeah russell t davis has done a really good job in developing um a fairly one-dimensional character that we saw in a runaway bride and i remember thinking partners in crime was the best season opener you know that we'd seen um, up to that point, at least, anyway, and I really enjoyed the comedy that Tate brought to the show. It was uh, it was really promising start. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and I think Rusty Davies uh, he wins uh, on two counts uh, by by bringing Donna Noble back, uh, and uh, firstly because uh, of the casting uh, and you know fabulous casting. You, you couldn't ask for a better person uh, to play this what is to be the new foil for, uh, for the Tenth Doctor. And secondly, on you know, the characterisation, because the aspects of the, of the Tenth Doctor's personality which, which jarred with me, which you know, elicited a, an emotional response from me, which was probably, in, it was probably intended. You know, the, the fact that he was so full of himself, the fact that he was, um, uh, he, was, he, was a bit, he was wisecracking, he wouldn't take things, he would often not take things too seriously. Uh, at times, uh, would have sort of darker moments where he, where he would show that, that he appreciated appreciated the severity of the situation but there was this idea that that he was um he was quite frivolous in the way he went about things rose fed off that and she, she was young uh, and she she it was it was like the um like the kid who hangs around with the school bully i'm not i'm not saying that the tenth author is a bully but you know he would say something funny and frivolous and she would sort of grin and be oh isn't he marvelous um and you had that dynamic then you had the unrequited love dynamic with with martha um which you know as I said before, seemed, probably seemed like an interesting way to take it, but you know, didn't work. Uh, and then you have the, the perfect foil for the Tenth Doctor, as you say, Trev, someone who doesn't take any of his nonsense, who who uh, who, who doesn't think that he is you know the best thing since sliced bread, and will will openly cut him down uh, as he's mid flow uh, talking about how brilliant he is. Uh, and to me, this was just this was everything I wanted. This this was what I would do at the TV screen when, when the Tenth Doctor was going into one of these uh, uh, diatribes about how uh, marvellous he was. Well, it, it wasn't just the casting of Catherine Tate or the characterisation of Donna Noble either. Remember that RTD pulled a Moffat on us and um, we didn't know that Billy Piper was going to appear <laughs> towards the end of Partners in Crime. That came as a complete bolt out of the blue mm. and it, it wasn't leaked. And, you know, it was a very minor version of what um, what Stephen Moffat managed to achieve with Jenna Louise Coleman in Asylum of the Daleks. But it, it, it's not just that. I mean, this entire season, um, considering you've got someone as stellar as Catherine Tate in it, you've also got a whole load of other companions. You've got Martha, who makes her return, sadly. Uh, that probably was more of a... Um, <laughs> 
more of a kind of bad feeling, I think, um, on Russell T. Davies' part. He probably thought, well, okay, Freeman, we gave you the mm. elbow to get Catherine Tate in. Now you come back and I'll give you a few torchwoods later as well. Wasn't she awful? She, she was. Absolutely awful in that story. Well, I think she, she was really bad in... Yeah, if you're talking about the two parts of Sontaran, Strategy, and Poison Sky. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and that's because they completely... I mean, you touched on it perfectly a couple of episodes ago. They gave Martha a leading role in the military, which she simply couldn't pull off. No one would believe that character could do it. And that's and that isn't to criticise Freema Adjuman. I mean, she wasn't going to be able to act convincingly given Martha's story in those two episodes. <laughs> Where I was going just before that was that you also introduced to Bernard Cribbin's character, or reintroduced, should I say, because we saw him as well um, for the first time in Voyage of the Damned. We get Rose being the bad wolf of the season. She keeps on turning up. And we're introduced to River. So this series is littered with, you know, really big characters. They're, They're not extras. These are people who come in already got a history in the show so this is rtd really writing his swan song throughout all of this season all of this year he's bringing back things and uh, he's celebrating them and i think that's why journey's end fundamentally doesn't work because it is just a celebration of all of his stuff Um, and, Mm. and i don't know when he wrote it whether or not he knew what was planned for the following year yeah because there he had to try and do it all again at the um at the end of the end of time part too but for me for all of that and for how busy season four is this is by far and away um, my favorites uh, of the first four years uh, in terms of the collection of stories they're very very different and with the exception of the finale and the story that we've already mentioned the Sontaran two-parter then I'm very keen on all of the the episodes, uh, all of the stories that we get in 2000 and, uh, 2008. It certainly brings a, a new sort of consistency to to a season, uh, and you know maybe that consistency is entirely subjective. I mean, it, it, in fact, it definitely is. Uh, I'm sure there are there there are people that that, that find uh, earlier series uh, more consistent in, in their storylines. It, it just depends on what you're looking for out of a Doctor Who season. But be, certainly, certainly for me, uh, this is this is consistently strong. Well, you're certainly right in terms of consistency of quality, but the, the the reason why season four, I think, is so good is because of its inconsistency in kinds of story that it tells. I mean, you, you look halfway through, you've got uh, a story that I can't wait to discuss with Trev, because I don't actually think I've ever talked about the unicorn and the wasp with him mm-hmm. live on a podcast before. I've sat there and listened to him, <laughs> but I've not actually discussed it with him. Um, but then you look at the, the, the story preceding that, uh, just before it, The Doctor's Daughter, David Tennant, some of his strongest scenes in his entire run as a Doctor are in the Doctor's Daughter for me. Midnight is an absolutely fascinating episode that came out of, I think, another script falling through. Mm. Turn Left, once again, a Doctor Light episode. This is RTD saying, actually, I can do a really good Doctor Light episode. You know, take that, Stephen Moffat, and take that, Blink. Mm. And I, I think because of that, it just works. And along with the actors they managed to attract, you know, Peter Capaldi um, in, in The Fires of Pompeii, incredibly scary and Karen Gillan actually has a much larger role to play in that story than I remembered mm. her having and um, I, I managed to watch the first two episodes of this season uh, in readiness for, for this discussion and I'd, I'd forgotten how scary the fires of Pompeii mm. is it's really quite gruesome and it borders on 
horrific I think at times and I remember you know I normally watch the episodes with with my wife and this was the very first episode that Angela said halfway through I'm not going to watch the rest of this I'm going to have bad dreams you know and this is a, a fully grown woman but that's when I thought great it, it hits <laughs> a lot of uh, you know Doctor Who buttons or my Doctor Who buttons uh, in the as you say James it, it, it shifts around it, it tries interesting things it does different things from, from week to week and, and they work uh, and it has the historical element with the fires of Pompeii I mean there's lots of, of truly uh, historical stuff in there I mean it's, a, it's an historic thing that happened and Russell T Davies does Although he's not the writer, but he's, he's in overall control of, of, of you know, what's what's put out. Um, he manages to pull it down, and this is what he does rather well to, to a personal thing. So you, you see it, the effect on a family uh, and casting in the, in this series for all of the um, you know the principal cast as, as well as the ancillary cast uh, are all fabulous. Uh, you know, Peter Capaldi, uh, what a coup! Uh, there are there are lots of coups. Bernard Cribbins. Uh, as a recurrent character is is a coup this this series is fabulous there, there is one bad thing about the fires of pompeii you know um what is it <laughs> it's the first time the dreaded phrase fixed point in time was mentioned Ooh. No, that, we hadn't heard it before. Uh, I'm pretty certain we hadn't heard it before, anyway. And why is it? Well, why is it so dreaded? Oh, because it doesn't make any sense, and it's probably the last grand RTDism. I know. I don't know. Why doesn't it make any sense? Go on. It's not that it doesn't make any sense. It was applied inconsistently, and I think it, even at its worst, it it was applied when it was convenient. Oh, you know, we have a certain element in the story which requires them to say no we can't change it therefore it's a fixed Mm. point in time but then they would ignore it in other respects fixed points in time are an incredible plot cop-out you need to have them if you're going back to uh to an historic event which has happened you know that we are aware of uh, well yeah a, a genuine historic event there needs to be a reason as to why the doctor can't prevent that event from happening but they'd done that anyway they'd done that by saying if the doctor didn't cause the the volcano to explode then events wouldn't follow along the natural timeline you didn't need to have some guff about it being a fixed point in time it must happen therefore it must always happen and and i do feel you know i i do feel quite bad towards rtd on this because this is the one thing that Stephen moffat did pick up on and of course you've got the fixed point in time at the beginning of the impossible astronaut down at lake silencio and, and that still never really made sense and and trevor is absolutely right it was it was applied inconsistently it was it never really made sense it seemed to be much more of a convenient the more it was used as opposed to a genuine clever MacGuffin. Moving on, uh, Planet of the Ooh, that's quite an interesting story as well. It sees, you know, I think this is the very first time, or it's certainly one of the first times, that a monster or a creation um, that we see since 2005 has been brought back later in a much more uh, expansive role. And I, I don't know. I'm not sure whether or not Planet of the Ood worked. It's it, it certainly worked for me on a um, a visual basis. You know the, uh, the the snow globe or whatever, and um, the linking it to the sensorite sense sphere. I thought was 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 really good. But I, I kind of felt by the end of this, the Ood had been cheapened somewhat. You know they weren't as mysterious, and uh, I, I think also this was the bridging point that led us to the Ood opening. The End of Time, Tenants Falani, which of course doesn't make any sense whatsoever, Ood's having a seance. But uh, <laughs> there, there was a slight moral 
<laughs> slight moral in this story as well. I think there's a line about, well, you know, who do you think makes clothes? And the Doctor's quite pointed, I think, when he talks to Donna about that. Uh, they're talking about slaveries. But, but but on the whole, you know, it's, it, it's a little bit of a letdown after what I think possibly was the pinnacle of this season in the preceding episodes in, in Pompeii. And, of course, we have the uh, Sontarans in this series. Mm, I mean, another returning mm. monster for Doctor Who. And, and, and I think um, pretty much they are a, a triumphal return. It's fantastic. Now, this, this is Australian um, uh, irony. I didn't know they did irony in Australia. You, you don't think the Sontarans are any good in this? The Sontarans are good, but the story is not the best, I don't think. And that's because it places Martha at the centre of it, pretty much. It's an interesting story, and it's considerably better than the two-parter that Helen Rayner contributed a couple of years prior to that. Oh, no, actually, it was the year before that, wasn't it? Uh, with the Dalek story. The Dalek um, one, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it's uh, all about a rogue sat-nav. I mean, I, uh, yeah, it's it was okay. I found the um, child genius immensely irritating. It, was, it just felt like a very long, drawn-out, story but yes it is a triumphant return for the Sontarans they look fantastic I still have a problem as to why they have to be short um that that certainly wasn't um established in the previous you know era of the show not desperately important but uh, there does seem to be a lot of short jokes made at their expense by the doctor as well so yet again Mm. you know RTD poking fun perhaps at uh, a large group well, it's interesting you should mention that the, uh, the, the uh, irritating genius, uh, because there were lots of moments within this. In fact, it was almost sort of the, the, the crux of the episodes. Uh, the Doctor related to this irritating genius. Uh, and there was lots of, uh, you know, I know what it's like to be an irritating genius, which all it did for me was reinforce my, my sort of... My opinion of the, of the Tenth Doctor, who was an irritating genius. How about the Tenth Doctor as a father, though? It's an interesting dynamic, I suppose. One one thing I found, I, I think only with the benefit of hindsight and looking back on this season, is the concept of the Doctor being alone, the, the loner Doctor travelling on his own. And even though Series 4 did have Donna with him for the entire season, I, I still think they were weaving in elements of the Doctor starting that journey towards being an outsider, Absolutely. towards being a loner. Yeah. And I think there's tons of things they throw at him in, especially Series 4, where even though he's surrounded by people, there's still elements of what if the Doctor was alone? Um, he's going to be spending more time on his own. And, and even the Doctor's daughter has that. It has the Doctor coping with the possibility that, that he does have a daughter. And we got a little bit of that as well in Silence in the Library, Forest of the Dead, where we had to deal with the uh, loss of River, even though he never knew her. And we had it in Turn Left, and we certainly had it in Spades in uh, stories like Midnight. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I think this is one piece of evidence that you can use to say that Russell T Davies actually did have a plan, at least for this season and and the following Mm. year as well. Because, of course, all of the specials see the Doctor in that state, Trev. I mean, you mentioned that he was becoming darker. Um, He was beginning to think, well, perhaps I shouldn't really have a companion around because something always goes wrong. And, of course, the trauma of having to basically delete all of... Donna's memories at the end of Journey's End was just too hard for him to deal with and therefore we get all of the specials and the Doctor being on his own. So yes, I think you're absolutely right there. It was a fascinating way for him to go as well, I have to say, because we hadn't seen the Doctor really be that introspective. I mean, Lisa, you've dwelt a lot on the Tenth Doctor being smug and arrogant and not a particularly pleasant individual, Mm. but he's also 
very self-obsessed. Oh yeah. And I, I think if you look towards the end of this this era or his era, you know, even his last words, "I don't want to go." I mean, I'm not quite mm. sure how much of that was Russell T. Davis speaking through the character, and they were basically saying, "This is the death. This is the death of the character here." Yes, it does work because of the way the Tenth Doctor is, and they, they were certainly building up some very negative qualities within that character. But I, I think people do overlook a lot of the really good aspects of the Tenth Doctor as well. And I think Trev, you can talk about this in in Spades. He had a great sense of humour, as the Unicorn and the Wasp demonstrated. Oh, you <laughs> led me into that, didn't you, Mister mm. James? <laughs> mm. I'm not sure whether I should rise to the bait or not, but yeah, um, <laughs> he has a wonderful sense of comic timing, David Tennant does, and and even in stories where one could argue it is an even more serious tale, like the Sontaran stories, like Silence in the Library, there's there's still that sense there that he, he can keep things bubbling along with the odd quip and, and just his overall general energy, but... As you were trying to lead me to, James, sometimes I think they go a little bit too far. And Unicorn and the Wasp is an outright, out there, comedic story. And and I don't think that really fits in with the David Tennant character that much. I I think he works well when he's being a a little bit more subtle, not when they throw it all out there for all to see. It it was an absolutely straightforward attempt at a comedic story i remember gareth roberts at the time saying there hasn't been comedy in doctor who like this since dennis spooner uh, was involved in the 60s and i think to a degree that's probably correct but it, 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 you also have to accept that that kind of comedy is not going to appeal to everybody and um, this is certainly an episode that divides opinion no question i mean i, I mean for me unicorn and the wasp is that blip mid-season that kind of jars the whole season for me because Certainly we get into a series of stories after that with Silence of the Library, Forest of the Dead, Midnight Turn Left, which, which almost form a, well, one long-running story all the way up to the end of the season with Stolen Earth Journey's End. And whether we needed that break before we got into that very, I suppose, serious part of the season or not is debatable, but um, it's certainly very different to what the rest of Series 4 is like. No, it's, it's very different from any Doctor Who that we'd seen so far since the show came back, but uh, I think that was quite deliberate. Bear in mind, this was Tennant's and Tate's first episode that they recorded together, and weren't they brilliant? Irrespective of whether you think this is a good script or a good piece of Doctor Who, the way those two actors bounce off each other uh, with this script that allows them to just chuck comedic lines around i think they did marvels and wonders with this script i thought they were no, they excellent didn't. you didn't think they were particularly good i don't want them to bounce off each other i, I don't want the doctor to be in the uh, kitchen shoving ginger pop down his throat and shaking his leg and having convulsions well no i, 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 I don't I, want that i don't disagree but given the fact that it was going to happen i mean i think they really attacked it very very well i think if you'd have had I don't know. This is a really, you know, fatuous comparison. But if you were going to have McCoy doing it, for instance, you just know that a, a ferret or something would have made it up his trousers. <laughs> it, it just wouldn't have been as funny. It would have been even more galling. I, I don't have the hatred for it that, that Trevor does, um, and I, I didn't really learn a great deal historically, um, you know, out of it either. <laughs>
Well, let's get away from stories that concern uh, giant wasps hiding inside priests and uh, get on to the meat and potatoes of this season. And the next story, Silence in the Library, Forest of the Dead, the two-parter, introduces a character which I think even today resonates throughout the entire series. Oh, of River Song. Of course, of course. And one wonders how formed Moffat's ideas were, and there's been oodles of speculation about that in the past, uh, but even on, on this podcast. And uh, I, I just think this is a classic Doctor Who story. You've gone from what you can describe as an experiment, so the previous week, to classic Doctor Who. This is Doctor Who as it should be told in the 21st century. As far as I'm concerned, it was a brilliant piece of storytelling, fantastically directed, I think, as well. The combination between Stephen Moffat and Euros Lynn had had already been well established. And uh, I I just love this two-parter. I watch it now. I look at Colin Salmon's performance. Um, I I look at Alex Kingston's performance and, and, and wonder how she can keep such a consistent set of performances when you consider how many more times she reappeared in the show as the same character and that clearly she had no idea that's what she was going to be doing um i i I just think it was really really good it stands up now and I, i really enjoy it okay we then move on to what is 18 months or eight episodes full of russell t davis episodes and uh it's kind of disappointing for me, I think, when you consider how good season four has been up to this point. I mean, we'd only had one RTD script, and that was right at the very beginning of the uh, the season. But let me come back to Midnight. Now, this is the budget episode, if you like, because it is fundamentally televised theatre. It's been a long time since Doctor Who has set an entire episode on one set, basically. I mean, there's a couple of setting up shots at the beginning and at the end, but the majority of it is on this spaceship or this basic um futuristic bus. bus yeah pretty much mm. i lots of people love midnight lots of people don't like it very much and i think i have to say i go towards the latter of those two opinions i i find it a little bit cringeworthy particularly the setup you know lots of very cardboardy predictable characters I think it's a really, really bold story for what it tries to do. Mm. But I think sometimes that people miss the point of it. That Well, certainly from my perspective, this story sets up that the Doctor is someone that uh, no one listens to. He, he doesn't have the authority in this story. That authority has been taken away from him by the events of the story. For me, that's something that typifies the David Tennant Doctor throughout his era. I've never really considered David Tennant to be a forceful commanding doctor he's he's not like a tom baker or a john pertwee that can enter a room and command it instantly and i think midnight is the realization of that for me that the series is saying 10th doctor is not a man that uh takes the situation instantly he, he's he's often at the periphery of many things yeah i i think it's the first time we've seen the writers play with the 10th doctor's lack of authority because, again, as Leeson has already said, he's very quick to say how brilliant he is and how fundamentally fantastic he is in every crisis. And yet all of a sudden we're seeing the situation where nobody listens to him. And that is pretty much the Tenth Doctor's major fear, I think, because behind every gobby individual there's usually a fairly insecure person. And uh, mm. I'm talking about myself, perhaps, there a little bit as well. <laughs> and yet, yet when, when you... Um, when you get to the, the the crux of this story, not only is the Tenth Doctor not listened to, but he loses his ability to speak. 
You know, he loses control mm. of himself, and that must be a terrifying concept. And I think that's what a lot of people, well, it, it is a terrifying concept, and that's what a lot of fans, a lot of people latch onto and say that they love about this story because it's simply not examined. Um, in any, as far as I'm concerned, even in Classic Coup, it's the first original thing that Doctor Who had done at this point. I think, too, Midnight's one of those stories that certainly uh, is, is part of the whole loner Doctor arc. Like, even though he is surrounded by people, he, he is very much alone in this story. And, and I think that feeds into his general uh, demeanour and manner that um, leads him to uh, travel on his own by the end of Series 4. He, he just feels he doesn't have the confidence to uh, travel with anyone anymore. Mm. Yeah, uh, it, it just continues him along that journey. And um, it, it's a very dark story. Um, and, and when you compare it and contrast it to the story that we started off talking about what seems like a hundred years ago voyage of the damned you know that's a very dark story too but you've got for some reason a very bouncy buoyant doctor and there are some scenes that you're meant to celebrate just because he's the doctor you know i'm a time lord i'm 903 years old i'm going to save everybody all of a sudden you see this fall um you know of that doctor where he can't save anybody and he's utterly reliant on somebody else and yeah as, as we've already mentioned Trevor you're right this is his journey to um, a dangerous doctor a doctor who thinks he's better off on his own but it's all of a sudden the audience is shown what the universe is like without the doctor in the following story in, in in turn left so you know you get two different stories very well thought out once again I think you know the doctor loses all, all of his authority in one and all of a sudden the universe loses the doctor in the following story and you look to see you know in both scenarios the outcome is devastation and uh, I, I I think that really does kind of bolster up and enhance the character of the 10th doctor despite the fact he's impotent in one and absent from the other. I think again turn left is is another interesting idea for Doctor Who uh, it, it's certainly something they've never attempted before I've, I've never really been a big fan of the Doctor Light stories but I think this one is probably the better of the Doctor Light stories because it's got Donna Noble in it because it's got Catherine Tate uh, putting in a wonderful performance mm. in the story mm. um, if, if they'd had someone like Freeman Adjaman or uh, Billy Piper or something like in in this it, it wouldn't have worked as well <laughs> Billy Piper was in it <laughs> quite a bit actually. oh I know I know she was in it but I mean yeah. not, not, not as the companion who we were following, you know, as as the main part of the event. As, as Leeson said, Leeson talked about how difficult Midnight was to access if you didn't know the backstory. Turn left must have been absolutely impossible because you're watching Doctor Who, there isn't anyone called the Doctor in it, and it's full of people from the show's past and uh, in an alternate universe. And, and I think that was one of the failings, certainly, of... Um, the Stolen Earth and Journey's End. Um, the Stolen Earth, I actually quite liked as a setup um, to a two-parter. It's it, it's pretty much like a comic book. I mean, you can almost see the frames because the sh- the the, um, the scenes are very short. Um, you're you're almost meeting new characters for the first twenty minutes in a series of little scenes, and and then you bring it up to this huge, huge crescendo uh, cliffhanger which I think worked really quite nicely and I'm not suggesting part two should be exactly the same as part one but Journey's End was so different uh, to the Stolen Earth it it, it just not even the return of Davros magnificent as he was could rescue the absolute dross (laughs) that, uh, that Russell T Davis wrote one thing I wanted to mention was the actual cliffhanger 
to Stolen Earth, which I think on one hand is one of the finest, most well-crafted cliffhangers ever, but on the other hand it's probably one of the worst bits of television I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. And and certainly its resolution at the beginning of Journey's End was, was absolutely cringeworthy. No, you're absolutely right, yeah. And I, I'd, I think by that point we knew that David Tennant was going to go. And I genuinely thought, I really thought the production crew have they've pulled a wonder. They've pulled a, this enormous rabbit out of the hat here. And they were going to regenerate the Doctor, you know, in Journey's End. And how brilliant would that have been? It would have been just fantastic. Mm. No one would have seen that coming. How on earth would they have kept it secret? And of course it turned out that actually that wasn't the case. And therefore pretty much any resolution was going to be disappointing. And and, and the yeah, way yeah. you know he directed all of that regeneration energy into the hands that we saw cut off at the beginning of his era, oh, yeah, mm. it, 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 it just went downhill from there. And I've never liked the Doctor in that blue suit either. And so into Stolen Earth Journey's End, where, oh, oh, we see the incomparable Julian Bleach as Davros. Oh, he, he was absolutely superb. I mean, I kind of really hoped they were going to bring back Terry Malloy, you know, because uh, he still plays Davros for Big Finish, and there's no reason why he, he couldn't, presumably. Uh, but given that Julian Bleach didn't have a history with the show at all, he attacked that character brilliantly and he he had despite some crazy lines a ridiculous storyline uh he still managed to carry it off brilliantly so yeah I, i'm with you there certainly well this episode has brought us up to the end of series four we've only got the gap year the uh year with the specials to come up but that's a discussion for another podcast so until next time james i, I will bid you farewell oh farewell thee trevor and leeson cheerio And we will see you all next time on the Doctor Who Podcast for The End of David Tennant. Dun, dun, dun. Hey, hey, listen. James, yes? Have you heard? Have you heard? I think think I've heard about it. I think I saw it on the internet. Is it the same thing that you've heard? I'm almost certain. You must be thinking about the second Big Blue Box convention happening on Saturday the 16th of March 2013. 10.45am until 7.15pm. At the Trinity Theatre, Tunbridge Wells. No, no, I was thinking about something else, but I'm thinking about that now. We're going to get an opportunity to see Louise Jameson, Sarah Sutton, Dorian Fisher-Becker... He was that blue head, you know. How are they going to interview a head? Well, it would be relatively easy, wouldn't it? It's, I mean, because the head is all you need, really, for the interview, do you think? Well, yeah, I wonder whether or not he comes with his own kind of pallbearers, you know. I mean, where, where, where do they wire the microphone up, etc.? I think they'll, they'll, well, they'll bring him out on a, on a ceremonial cushion, won't they, onto the stage. Uh, Maybe that's what it'll be. With a special podium, like a music stand, and they'll stand there like a coconut. I do hope they get his head the right way up this time. He gets terribly grumpy when he's upside down. Mm. And you don't want a grumpy guest at a convention. Particularly when everybody's going to be laughing so much, because along with all of the other guests that are appearing, Toby Hadoke is going to be performing... It's Hadoke. It's Hadoke. Hadoke. That sounds fishy. (laughs) Anyway, him, who does these things, is going to be performing his sequel to... What was his original? Moths ate my Doctor Who scarf. Yes, and this is called... Uh... My stepson stole my sonic screwdriver. That's it. Anyway, how much is this going to cost, Leeson? It's, it's £50 uh, or £30 concession. What's, what's concession? That's a long word. 
I, th- I think I think it means children under 12. 12 inches. Yes, or it could potentially be for people who are 12 years and under. It's only £30. Yes, yes, yes. You're right, James. I've looked at the site now and it, yes, that's what it is. So the best way to get tickets then is online. It's www.trinitytheatre.net or you can phone them using the old electric telephone on 01892 678 678. But you've got to be quick because there's only 200 tickets for this convention. 200. I think they're going to be sold out very quick. I think you're right, James. I also think that telephones aren't electric. Oh, really? Really. They used to be, didn't they? They've never been electric. They've never been electric. I'm put- I thought they were. Oh, honestly, you learn so much doing podcasts with you, Lisa, and I'm glad I'm doing this trailer with you. I think it's going rather well, don't you, James? Yes. Make sure you're there. The Doctor Who podcast will be there. And we very much look forward to seeing you at... Big Big Blue Blue Box. Box. Two. That was The Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care. Thank you.